All right, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you are without a Bible, just flag one of the men that's coming up the aisles right now. And uh, they have Bibles. They get one into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible they're giving to you a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. And after two days, it was uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Jesus is now two days away in terms of his life and ministry. We've been studying it in terms of his ministry now. Three and a half years of it is behind us in the gospel according to Mark. And now he is two days before uh, the cross. And, uh, and that gives us the timeline. And the chief priests and scribes, it's just awful, really. I mean, if it had been some kind of uh, rabble in Jerusalem that was involved in this, it would be bad enough. But to have the highest Jewish religious leaders uh, within the religion and within the land uh, contemplating and planning what they were doing makes it uh, unspeakably awful. And they had gotten together, and we know from another gospel that they were meeting in the home of uh, the high priest and doing this. And they sought, they were planning, that is, how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. So they are actively seeking his death. But there's one thing that they don't want to have happen, verse 2, and they said, but not, uh, not during the feast, that is the feast of Passover, uh, lest there be an uproar of the people. Let's let the feast of Passover go by, and then we will uh, attempt to bring an end to uh, the life and the ministry of Jesus. Of course, they're not in control of uh, the situation at all, though they think they're in control of it. The feast of Passover for the Jews is a feast that celebrates redemption. They celebrate the redemption, God's redemption of them from the physical bondage of over 400 years, the bondage that they were in to the Egyptians. It is a celebration of God's deliverance of them from that uh, physical bondage. And, and uh, Jesus is going to uh, die on the cross on the Passover, despite their best efforts to avoid it, uh, because Jesus has come now to fulfill all of these uh, imagery, imagery from the Old Testament, including all of the Jewish feasts and sacrifices. And Jesus has come into the world. He is, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he would die on the cross at the time of the Passover and fulfillment of the feast because he was introducing into the world in his death an even greater redemption than the redemption of the children of Israel from Egypt. He is bringing into human history the, the redemption of man from a greater bondage, uh, the bondage of sin 
and providing a way for mankind to be saved and to be freed from that, that bondage. And so here they are. They think they're in control. They're doing the planning. They've got all of their titles and whatever people thought of them. And, and yet he's, Jesus is going to end up being crucified on the very day that they don't want him to be crucified. And of course, as as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, Jesus was uh, delivered uh, and, and by the determined counsel and the foreknowledge of God. God is in control of the entire situation. I can't help, you know, as we come into this passage to think a little bit about some of the songs that we've just uh, sang here in worship to the Lord and within them multiple reminders of the fact that uh, God is in control. He's in control of the world. He's in control of our uh, individual lives. I remember when I was a little boy, I'm just going to tell you stories but from my childhood tonight and uh, uh, so walk out anytime you want. But I remember when I was a, a little boy in terms of just God being in control. Uh, I remember when uh, Louis Armstrong, uh, he, uh, he sang that song, you know, he's got the itty bitty baby in his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands, and he had that remarkable kind of voice that he did. And it's funny, I, mean, I think, I wonder how many of us in the room here tonight, we can think back to times in our life before we became a Christian or anyone shared the gospel with us. And there were just, this was long before we got exposed to these, these things, my brother and I. And yet these little things that came on the television or over the radio that were spiritual in nature that God gave such life to. And I believed it. I didn't know any better as a kid. I believed it because Satchmo said it and he sang it. And there was just the witness of the Holy Spirit to that truth that he cares about the itty-bitty baby that's in his hand and he's got the whole world in his hand. And that was something that anchored me. I remember watching uh, uh, Sidney Pontier in uh, Lilies of the Field. Perhaps some of you uh, remember it. If you're old enough, certainly you remember it. It was one of the big blockbuster hits. Then, you know, you've got all these nuns and the thing and he's doing, and then they do that Amen song somewhere in the course of that whole thing. And I've never forgotten that Amen song. Here I'm a kid. I don't know anything about anything, but there's something about God. I understand and, uh, and, and the truth of that. And I I've, uh, know people that uh, back uh, 30 years ago now or whatever it was when Jesus Christ Superstar came out, it's hardly an evangelistic film, uh, but they went to it loaded or what, I don't know, but they went into it and all they heard was the songs about Jesus and came out and, and uh, got saved and thought they'd investigate his life a little bit more. They missed everything else about uh, of, of the nonsense, and then they, but the Lord gave life to that something. And, it, and it, it, it's, it's wonderful to, to realize that the Lord is in control. He's in control of our lives. He's in control uh, of, of the world. And no religious people are. Nobody in power is. God is in control of all of that. And so, here you have these Jewish religious leaders doing what they're doing. And then the way that Mark does things in, in an absolute, he has these kind of, uh, he, he takes these snapshots. We used to have the Polaroids where, you know, you take the thing and it developed before your eyes and then you put it in the scrapbook. I, was, I heard a comedian one time talking about how many pictures we have today. He says, I have more pictures of my kids than my father ever looked at me. I mean, we got so many pictures that we, you know, even these illustrations fall apart. 
but he kind of puts these snapshots one after the other, you know, uh, for uh, impacting us. And so here you have the darkness of these Jewish religious leaders, and then now in contrast to all of that, this beautiful scene of what happens in the city of Bethany. And being in Bethany uh, at the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, Uh, Jesus, I've mentioned it before, but Jesus, on the final uh, week of his life, he never spent a night in Jerusalem. It was very hostile territory for him. He spent every night in the city of Bethany, uh, two miles to the east of the city of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. He had friends there. Uh, We know that that, uh, he had friends in the form of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, But they weren't the only ones that loved Jesus in that city. Here we're told on this particular night that he's in that city of Bethany and he's in the house of Simon the leper. And we can absolutely assume that he is Simon the former leper and uh, that his life had been impacted by Jesus in the course of Jesus' ministry and he had been cleansed of his leprosy and became a follower. And so this house was a place of of peace for Jesus and all that he's facing. And he sat at the table. And then a woman, we know this to be uh, Mary uh, from the other Gospels, uh, she came and she had an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. We're going to see in a moment that the value of it was 300 denarii. Denarii was, uh, one denarii was the wage of a, a blue-collar worker in those days. So this was, the value of this was, what, 30, 40, 50, 60 thousand dollars in, ter- in, in our terms, or whatever you understand uh, a blue-collar worker to make in California today. That's the kind of value that it was to her. And so she's got this alabaster flax. It is filled with very costly oil of spikenard. Very, very uh, precious. And then notice what she does with this. And we're talking about something that's worth tens and tens of thousands. Uh, Then she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. And that word broke is is an important word to, to understand here. Because she didn't unscrew the lid. That's way, way down the path in human history. Uh, These ointments were put into these containers and sealed. Once you opened them, you used them in their entirety. And typically when a person had a a flask of of oil of spikenard, because of its value, oftentimes it it would pass down as kind of an heirloom within the family. Or it'd be something that you would use for your old age, or if something, uh, you know, were to come up and you were in need of, of resources. Very, very often, this kind of oil that it, it would be broken and it would be used on a wedding night. That's how special it was. If it was for the, the absolute utmost special occasion that you would use something like this. Another time in which these kind of oils were broken and the flask was broken and then poured out because they had to be used all at the same time was very often associated with a funeral. To have the oil poured over uh, the body of a loved one who had just died and in anointing them in that way. And Mary understands what nobody else in the room seems to understand. She has no confidence that she's going to be able... She knows Jesus is going to die. This is all going over the heads of the disciples. 
And she has no confidence that she will one day have the opportunity to pour this oil over Jesus in his death. She has this opportunity two days before his crucifixion, and so she uses the opportunity to do that. And she breaks it and she poured it uh, on his head. The reaction uh, on uh, the part of the disciples is really, you know, it's really one of the low points of their uh, their ministry. It's right up there with arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God after Jesus has just spoken to them about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So they witness this incredible expression of worship on the part of Mary. And, and worship, to worship means to ascribe worth to. Uh, the, 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 the Greek word that is oftentimes used for worship, it means concerning God, it means to lean toward, to kiss. This is what she was expressing of her heart toward Jesus in this. They assess it from an entirely different vantage point. They, are, they aren't getting anything here. And there were, some of, uh, the, there were some who were indignant, we know from the other uh, Gospels, that it was the, the, the apostles themselves. Uh, they were indignant among themselves. Now, who would view something like this? And what, conditional, what spiritual condition are you in to have this kind of a reaction in the face of this kind of an expression of worship toward who presumably and truly uh, you love most in all of the world, Jesus. And their, their reaction was they were indignant among themselves. They began probably to interact with one another, very upset uh, over it. And they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Wow. They viewed what she did for Jesus is a waste. And they're so confident that it is that they're willing to verbalize it in front of Mary and in front of Jesus. They're indignant and they declare it to be a waste. I think that one of the things that this passage teaches us, it teaches me, God brings it to my remembrance every once in a while, not weekly, not even monthly but every once in a while, as is needed. It's very important for us as Christians to never, ever judge in a negative way uh, the worship of another Christian toward the Lord, and certainly never to judge the extravagance of that worship that is being expressed to the Lord. Because most often, if we do that, what we will discover, and they're about to discover in just a moment, is that it is not that the other person is in the flesh or carnal, but it is that we are so carnal and unspiritual that we don't recognize this for the spiritual thing that it is. It always reflects poorly upon us. And sometimes uh, that can happen. You can have, uh, these are not pagans, these are not Philistines that are in this room on that night. These are all Christians in the room. And yet you can even have a Christian look at the extravagance of the worship of one Christian towards the Lord and say they've taken it too far. They're too far, they've gone too far in their Christian life. 
until that particular group that's extravagant in their worship gets silenced, even in a context like this. And now the carnal dominate what's going to be tone of the tone of worship and the expression of worship that is directed toward the Lord. It's a terrible scene. And we're told in the other Gospels that uh, Judas was... Uh, the ringleader behind all of this. He was the treasurer. He held the money. All that he could look at was, here was 300 denarii that could have been in his purse, and, and now it's gone. But they all fell prey to it, and they fell prey to Judah, what Judas was saying here, because it was in them. They wanted to believe it. We tend to believe what we want to believe. They're not innocent victims here. They're all on, on, on the same page, and they, they declare it to be a waste. Nothing that is given to Jesus is a waste. Nothing. If we gave Him all of our lives, everything in our lives, if we gave Him the whole world, He would be due more than anything we will ever express from our hearts by our lips or anything we will ever do for Him or anything we will ever give to Him. He is worth infinitely more than all of that. And here is the the, the criticism continues in verse 5. They declared, for uh, it might have been sold, the ointment, uh, for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. So if we could have sold that instead of wasting this on Jesus, we could have used this money to feed the poor. I mean, their heart is so that's just so far out there. It's just such a bad, a bad scene. God's grace in our lives is, is a wonderful uh, thing. So they thought it should be for the poor. And then they don't stop there. And they, they, uh, and they criticized her sharply. They go from uh, expressing their indignation between one another to now they begin then to criticize her sharply in this public place. Imagine. She did not come into that room and say, hey, everybody, here's a flask of spikenard worth uh, a, a, a year's wages, and I want you to notice, and I'm going to do this for Jesus. She comes in, she's just doing her own thing. It's her own business. She's not showing off. This is just how she feels about God. And, and so this is, this is what she does. It's, this was the only thing she possessed that even remotely approached what she felt toward the Lord and her compassion toward Him and the cross that was right around the corner. And then they begin to criticize her. And not just to criticize her, that would be bad enough, but the Holy Spirit tells us they did it sharply. Can you imagine being in that environment, have done this innocently before the Lord, an absolute pure heart, and then to be attacked, not by pagans, but to be attacked and criticized by the apostles? And I, I, I mean, it, 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 could, it could make you doubt yourself. I mean, maybe Jesus is going to step in, as we'll see in a moment, but maybe she starts to think, well, maybe I was crazy. Maybe that was stupid. Maybe, that, maybe I made a fool of myself here. And, and this way that the carnal can make the truly spiritual second-guess their spirituality and their relationship with the Lord is a terrible thing that was being done. And Jesus then, in verse 6, he rises up and he now begins to defend her. 
And Jesus said to them, let her alone. Uh-oh. Can you imagine here having Jesus? You know, I, when I was in school, I never wanted a teacher to speak to me that way, or the principal, certainly not the dean of boys. But I mean, here, here is Jesus now, and he defends her, let her alone. I mean, he puts a stop to it. And he said, why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. It, it, I, I, in other words, I appreciate what it is that she's done for me. For you have the poor with you always, which tells us that communism will never uh, work in the world. There will always be poor. And Jesus is saying, you want to take care of the poor and to help the poor, you're always going to have an opportunity to do that. But as he goes on and declares, and, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. This is a finite two days before I'm going to be crucified. For from this day forward to the end of the age, there will always be poor uh, to feed and to care for and take care and, and take care of your great concern for the poor. But she saw what, what they didn't see, and she has done what she could. And boy, it, great sacrifice, but th this is what she could do. And she has come beforehand. Usually this is done afterwards. Come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And but Jesus, Jesus understood her motivation behind what she was doing that they did not understand at all. She knows I'm going to die and she wants to bless me and anoint me before the burial. The strange way to do it, but it was the window that she had. And he said, assuredly I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And so here we sit in October 2018, and, uh, and as a fulfillment of what Jesus declared, uh, here this has been done and told as a memorial to her. So you have the Jewish religious leaders, they are in their place. Then in complete contrast to that, you have Mary of Bethany anointing, uh, Jesus for burial, and then now in a completely jar another jarring kind of contrast, we're told in verse 10 that then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. The, the phrase that's interesting here, it's all interesting, but that phrase, uh, speaking about Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, it speaks volumes. Uh, it, it, what, what it's communicating is it is this is a sin. What Judas is doing here is against uh, incredible light and incredible revelation. Every sermon that Jesus preached in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, Judas heard it. We read it on the pages of Scripture, and we read the portions that we get. He heard it. How he treated every single person. He saw it with his own eyes. Every miracle, every cleansing of the leper, every raising someone from the dead. He got to see Jesus in his prayer life, got to see him in his public life, and then in his private life. It was an unbelievable level of privilege that only 12 people in human history had. And he is going to betray Jesus in the face of that privilege. And, 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 and so it, it's just intended to, to absolutely 
horrify us. Yes, Jesus would one day perhaps be betrayed by some who or what, but never would he come out of the ranks of the apostles. And yet here it is. He's betrayed and going to be betrayed by one of the twelve who then didn't wait to be approached by the chief priest. That would be bad enough to then sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He goes to the priests with his own plan. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And so he sought now actively how he might conveniently betray him. So here he is, he's with Jesus and, and all in these final hours. He's going to be dismissed here in a moment from being uh, in, in Jesus' presence. But as he's, uh, the whole time, the gears in his mind are working. How in the world can I do this conveniently? Do the, to betray him, but do the least damage to myself. And then, now, on the first day, verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Remember Jesus and, and the apostles and, and virtually the whole early church at this time, all of them Jews. And he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it, as he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders. And so he is going to keep the Passover. It was a requirement of all uh, adult Jewish males to keep the three feasts annually, the three great feasts, Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles on an annual basis. And so he is going to do that uh, with the disciples. And so they say, uh, they knew he was going to do it. Where do you want uh, us to go and prepare that? And it took preparation for the Passover. It was a very beautiful, involved kind of ceremony for the Jews. And he, went, and he sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Uh, in those days, it was women who carried pitchers of water, not men. It wasn't... Uh, uh, unheard of, but it was very, very rare to have a man going through the city with a pitcher of water. And so this would have easily distinguished him. You'll see him doing that. Follow him. And wherever he goes, say to the master of the house that he goes to, the teacher uh, says, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared, and there make ready for us. And so his disciples went out, came into the city, and found it just as Jesus had said to them, and they prepared uh, the Passover. And so Jesus had made uh, prior arrangements for, uh, for this, uh, this final Passover, and he, he simply directs them now for how all of, uh, uh, for where it's going to be, where it's going to take place and how, how to arrange for it. And then in the evening, he came with the twelve. So Judas is with him at this point. And as they sat and they ate, uh, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I li- it's assuredly, in the, uh, I like the verily, uh, but verily I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And this was, you might as well have uh, lit a piece of dynamite off in the room. As Jesus speaks to these twelve, and he says, one of you are going to betray me. 
And again, not some, it's not going to be Rome. It's not going to even be one of the religious leaders. It's going to be one of you that's going to betray me. And, and this impacted them in such a powerful way. And they, at least 11 of the 12 anyway. And they began to be sorrowful. I mean, this news that one of us is going to betray you and immediately broke their heart. The very thought uh, uh, that, that that would happen. That not only that one of them would be capable of it, but that one who had been given the privileged position that they had would take that position and then in spite of the revelation and privilege, betray Jesus after all of that. And then they began to say to him, one by one, is it I? And then another said, is it I? And there's this tremendous, and in, in, in here, this is a healthy thing in the apostles, the disciples at this point. There's a, a tremendous uh, a, a, a distrust of self in, in posing this question. They didn't, they didn't say, listen, it, it, it can't be me. We'll deal with some problems that they're going to have in this regard a little bit further. But they didn't, they didn't look and say, that's something that's absolutely impossible related to me. It could never happen, relate, you know. And, and, uh, uh, but their first reaction here, am, am, I the one that's going, am I the one that's going to do that? And, and tremendous humility uh, on their part in all of it. And Jesus, uh, I, there's no indication that he said, okay, is, is uh, Peter asked, and then Andrew asked, that he said, no, 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 and then, oh, there's Judas. <laughs> okay, it's got to be Judas. He didn't. Jesus answers their question collectively in a very, very interesting way. And he answered, and he said to them, it is, it is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. To dip in the dish of sauces is to eat a meal with a person. Again, speaking of the privileged position. Is somebody close to me? And he said, and the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. The Scriptures prophesied that the Messiah, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, that the, the Messiah would be crucified and, and brutally, a brutal death. And Jesus acknowledges that my death is going to be the fulfillment of, of the Scriptures, what is written of, of him. But he said, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never, ever been uh, born. And so when Jesus declares uh, all of this concerning uh, the, uh, the, the, the fact that he is going to be crucified, this is something that the Scriptures have said, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Only one of the twelve understood what he was talking about. And that was Judas, because Judas had already become the betrayal. And none of the other, none of the other 11 looked. And, it, it's fascinating when you look at Jesus in his dealing with the 12. He knows from day one that Judas is going to betray him. He knows it. And yet he brings Judas into this privileged position, even makes him the treasure uh, uh, of the money. And... and Obviously, he never mistreats Judas. He never treats Jesus, Judas any differently than he treated the other twelve. There was no shunning going on. 
There was no obvious cold shoulder. Otherwise, they would have all thought, oh boy, it's got to be Judas. I mean, look at how Jesus has treated them for three and a half years. There's none of that. Jesus treated them all the same. They had no idea which one of the twelve uh, of it m- might, might have been. And the beauty, I mean, of the, of the Lord's uh, heart here and uh, certainly gave Judas no excuse. He was sinning against horrible light, no excuse for, uh, for the betrayal. And he said it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And that's the truth of it. And uh, every, but what is true of Judas is true of every single person who rejects Jesus Christ and betrays him. What did Judas betray Jesus for? Money. 30 pieces of silver. You say, what a numbskull. That's what are you, what are you thinking? I mean, that was in the Old Testament, that was the price that you paid for a gourd slave that was gourd by an ox. That's, that's what he holds out for, 30 pieces uh, of, of silver. And it was covetousness. It was the love of money that took him down that path. Do you think about, and I allow it to search my own heart this evening, we all should, but you think about how many people, how many Christians uh, sell the Lord out for money. And, and they will obey the Lord all, in anything that is easy to obey from God's Word, they will readily obey it. But once it costs them something to obey, they won't do it. And once it costs them money, nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with having things, but there is something wrong when money becomes more important to me than God, and it's in the driver's seat of my life as a Christian. And I'm not saying that, every, uh, that a Christian like that is, is going to end up in perdition, as, as, as Judas is, is going to end up, but it, it speaks to us about the danger of a sin that is deeply ingrained within our culture. And that is the sin of covetousness. And I, I, I'll tell you, I want the Lord to search my heart tonight, and I want Him to search your heart tonight. If any of us are living a life in which, yes, I obey God until it costs me a penny, or it costs me a dollar, or a hundred dollars, or ten thousand dollars, and then He gets thrown by the wayside because covetousness is the great God within my life. It's a dangerous sin. It's a subtle sin. We think about all of the sins that Judas could have betrayed the Lord uh, over. And you, I, I bet if we didn't know the story, if we weren't familiar with the Bible, and you'd say, what in the world got a grip on Judas's heart? I mean, we, covetous would hardly make the top ten. We couldn't even guess it. Until we're told, and until then we live for a few years in this world, and especially in a materialistic society, and we realize, oh yeah, that's a dangerous sin. That's a dangerous sin in terms of betraying the Lord or denying Him. And so Jesus makes this statement concerning Judas Iscariot. He recognizes uh, that he's being spoken of here. And at this point, we know uh, from the other Gospels that he then departs. And now when Jesus begins to, now institutes the Lord's Supper communion, it's only 11, the 11 now. The Lord's Supper is a believer's meeting. Judas is gone now at this point. 
And so here they are in that upper room. They've just enjoyed the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread there, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and then he gave it to them. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And they took the bread, and they ate the bread. And the bread, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake of an unleavened cracker. It, it represents Jesus' body uh, uh, broken uh, for us. He takes that bread and he breaks it up. Jesus' body was broken for us upon the cross. Not a bone was broken, but his body was broken. I mean, from head to toe. His beard is pulled out. He's been beaten to a pulp twice. He's got spikes in his hands and in his feet. He's got a crown of thorn upon his head. Isaiah says you couldn't even recognize him as a human being or who, for who, who he was. And his body broken. You know, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, I don't know if you're like me, but when I think about the Lord's Supper and I think about the elements, I think about the bread and I think about the cup, I think about it, of course, from my vantage point. But think about Jesus as he hands the bread, and then in a moment he's going to talk about the cup representing his blood being shed for them. And to realize he's giving them these symbols, uh, is symbols of a new covenant, but symbols of what he knew he was going to endure the very next day. That my body is going to be broken like this bread, and my blood is going to spill in the same way that it is here in this cup. And what it represented to him was what he knew was going to happen to him the, the very next day. And how it must have been something, I think, as, as, he, as he looked at it and realized even the symbols spoke uh, uh, about uh, what was about to happen. And then he took the cup and, and the, the, the wine within the cup, symbolizing his his blood that was shed for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he had given thanks, he prayed, he gave that to them, and they all drank from it. And then Jesus explained to them this thing that they were doing. Remember, there's, they've never had a communion service before. They've never had the Lord's Supper before. They've just had the Passover, and now Jesus adds something on uh, to uh, the Passover here. This is something entirely uh, brand, uh, brand new that he's instituting. And, and he declares uh, to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And what Jesus was doing here is he, he was not giving the Passover a new meaning, but he was, he was giving it its highest uh, meaning. Again, the, the, the Passover feast representing, again, the, the redemption of the Jewish people from the physical bondage of Egypt. Here is a Savior. Here is a redemption that saves us from the bondage of sin. And, and the penalty of sin, one day from the very presence uh, of, of sin. And so this is a new covenant, which is the blood uh, establishes a new covenant, which is shed for uh, many. And a covenant was a, uh, the, 
was something that when we partake of communion, it's to remind us, and what Jesus is wanting to remind them and to remind us is that we are in a covenant with God that is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. When it talks about His blood, it talks about His life. When they, we talk about Jesus and, and the blood of Jesus, we're talking about the life of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that the life is in the blood. And, and so here is a covenant. Here, and, and, and a covenant in the Old Testament, and in this context, it was an agreement. And, and a covenant was an agreement upon what a relationship is going to be based upon. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder that our relationship with God is based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, it's 100% grace. We've talked about it in the past that in the Old Testament, uh, when Abraham and God established a covenant with Abraham and he cut the sacrifices in half and he put half on one side and half upon another and what was uh, in, in, in entering into a covenant two people they would walk and each one of them individually walk and do a figure eight among the sacrifices and when God established the covenant with Abraham only God did the figure eight Abraham did not it was not a covenant based upon what God was going to do and then Abraham doing anything. It was the most one-sided covenant that you could ever make, the one that God made with Abraham until we come into the New Testament and God establishes a new covenant on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved because of what it is that He has done for us. And we have relationship with God. And it is mutually agreed upon that this relationship is founded not upon works, but it is founded upon that sacrifice. And why would God make this relationship, this covenant with us, so one-sided? Except that He knows us so well. He knew He had to deliver to us a finished salvation. And that's why Jesus cried out on the cross concerning our salvation. It is finished. What if God came to us and said, and He gave you like a little red ball. And He said, all right, this covenant is based upon your faith in Jesus Christ and having this red ball at the end of your life. You'd be a nervous wreck. Where could you safely hide that red ball? I mean, you'd be stitching up your pockets so that they, it couldn't be good. We'd be an absolute wreck if it depended on us in even the smallest amount, our salvation. And so God says, now I will load it all the way over into my court and I will make it a free gift. And that's the covenant that we have uh, with the Lord. It is in His blood and in his blood alone. And he said in verse 25, Assuredly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine. They just had drunk the wine until the day when I drink it uh, new in the kingdom of God. And so this is a verse, verse 25 uh, speaks uh, 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 out against the um, uh, inadequacy or the inaccuracy of this thing called uh, transubstantiation. 
the idea that when a person partakes, the Roman Catholic Church believes in this, and, and uh, that, that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it becomes in that moment the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus Christ. But you know this, Jesus, Jesus never, he, he clarifies there in verse 25, and when they took this, this cup and he declared it to be the blood of the new covenant, he uh, speaks of the fact that it was absolutely the fruit of the vine, which he declared he would not partake of again until uh, we are one day uh, in his presence. And so the, the transubstantiation, there's other things where people come and say, well, um, that the Lord's Supper is more than just a symbol of Jesus' body and of His blood uh, given for us. And I don't know why, personally, I don't know why there's a need to make it more than that for it to be impactful. I, ha I have never, ever felt as if I am denied anything in recognizing it to be a symbol of what Jesus has done for me. I'm not looking at a cracker. I'm not looking at the blood. The cracker and the blood remind me of His body on that cross and that blood shed and the Holy Spirit speaking to us as we partake of the Lord's Supper, making that real to us all over again. And, and no need for it to actually become that in order for it, it to be meaningful. I've never understood the need uh, to uh, try and make it something more than, than, than that. And he speaks here of the fact of uh, no longer, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And here we see this beautiful reminder in the Lord's Supper of a future day when we will partake uh, of uh, this with, uh, with Jesus, the fruit of the vine. And the Lord's Supper is three things at once. It is a retrospect. It is always to look back upon what Christ has done for us. It is an introspect where we ask God to reveal any sin within our life that is unworthy of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for the forgiveness of our sins. And then it is a prospect. It reminds us, as Jesus does here, that one day... Uh, he is going to return for us. And so we do this in remembrance of Him on, on all three uh, fronts. And when they had sung a hymn, and, uh, and, and the, uh, as, as they're leaving there from uh, the area of Jerusalem, and they sang a hymn, and they went out then uh, to uh, the Mount of Olives, headed across toward Bethany, across the Kidron, Kidron Valley, and, uh, and uh, after singing the hymn. And Jesus then said to them, just the eleven with him now, and he said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. Uh, for it is written, and he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd, speaking of the Messiah, and the sheep, that is the disciples, will be scattered. Jesus says this is what's going to happen. It's all a part of the, the prophetic picture. But then he says in this beautiful picture of hope in verse 28, he says, but after I have been raised, I'm going to be crucified, and, and, uh, but after I have been raised, I will go before you uh, uh, to Galilee. Uh, he, he, he lets them know, you're going to fail. They're going to, they're going to absolutely shock themselves in their failure. 
uh, but they're not going to shock the Lord. And the Lord then speaks of the fact, you will do that, but there will be life and relationship with me. On the other side of that failure, it won't be the final word. I will go before you after my resurrection and meet you in Galilee, even as he did. Peter said to Jesus, he said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will uh, uh, not be. It's just like, I don't care what Zachariah says. I'm not doing it. Not going to happen. So Peter is very, very self-confident and, uh, and never think that he didn't mean it uh, 100%. Very self-confident, very determined, and uh, he declares that he sim- this simply is not going to be true of him. Was, again, it was inconceivable to him. Now, Peter makes, the way that Peter so often did, he, 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 make, he makes it worse than it needed to be. He could have just said, I will never do this, but he doesn't do that. He said, even though they all do it, I will not. He's got to draw them in. I, listen, I, this, I've, had, I've had my questions about these ten. I mean, for a long time. And I think, I think they'll fold on you like a deck of cards or whatever the old saying is. And not me. Mm-mm. And so there, there's the double pride here, the self-confidence, and then the comparing with others. The Bible says those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. And, and that, that's what he does. I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I I think if Peter had kept his mouth closed, Jesus would not have even told him this. It just would have been, okay, but now you're going to do this comparison thing, and Zechariah's all wrong, and you're right, and all of that. I'll tell you, Peter, uh, in front of everybody here, how this whole thing plays out. Before this night is over, you're going to deny that you even knew me three times. But he spoke the more uh, vehemently, and he said, if I have to die with you, uh, I will not deny you. And he absolutely meant it. And I think it's just like, okay, now you forewarned me. Now I'm really not going to do it. And, uh, and they all said, uh, likewise. And so this d- d- determination that, that they had. I want to stop there tonight because as we get into the Garden of Gethsemane, it's such holy ground and there's so much emotion that is here, sanctified emotion in terms of what Jesus went through long before he even got to the cross that I don't want to hurry through it tonight. So if the worship team could come forward and uh, lead us in, in worship uh, is a part of closing our service before I come up and pray and then we close in, in a final uh, song, uh, song here. Uh, tonight.